Well, welcome today. Glad to have you here. If you are new, if you're just joining us for the very first time, my name is Jonathan. I'm one of the pastors here at the church. Uh, today, uh, we come to the last in our series on relationships. We've been talking about marriage and singleness, and today we're going to talk about sex. Uh, you know, in some cultures, when I talk about marriage and, 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 and sex, it's kind of downplayed. It's kind of sort of a secondary thing, but not in our culture, right? I mean, we live in a culture today that celebrates and promotes sex pretty much everywhere you look, which means that we talk about sex a lot as a culture, but we don't often think about it very carefully, about what it's really all about, what it's there for. And so that's what we're going to do today. And the foundation that we've been working on in this series is that God created this world and that he created us and that he made us to be sexual beings. And therefore, God knows best about sex. And God is the one who gives us wisdom about how to experience it the best. And so we want to do as we have throughout this series by going back to the beginning to see what God said about these things at the very foundation of the world when he originally created us. And you know, if you go back to the Genesis chapter 1, you know this chapter, right? God creates the heavens and the earth, and, and over six days, he describes all of the different things. And every time he's done create, finishing a part of creation, he says, and it was good. And it was good. And it was very good. And when he's done creating humans, he sits back and he says, it was very good. And you know, all throughout that process, everything in the created order was good. Now think about that on a practical level. I mean, I mean everything, the, the sand on the beach and the sunset on the horizon was good. And food and drink was good. And the sound of music is good. And, and, and our body is good. And everything that we call sex, beauty and attraction, the desire of lovers, touch, arousal, foreplay, the sweetness of a kiss on your lips, an orgasm, all of it. It's good. In fact, God calls it very good. You see, right, right from the very beginning, it's very clear that God holds a very high view of sex. Contrary to many people's conception, God isn't some grumpy old man sitting in heaven trying to be a killjoy, kind of mad at the world. No, no. It's the exact opposite. I mean, God is a God who, who is a God of pleasure. God created us to enjoy sex. In fact, the, if you read the Bible, the very first commandment that God gives to humans, in fact, the very first words that he speaks to humans are these words in Genesis chapter 1. He says this, be fruitful and increase in number. That is a command that requires a lot of sex. I mean, that's a great command. Contrary to popular belief, God sees sex with a very high view, is a very good thing. But sex in God's eyes is not just for procreation. It's not just so that we have babies and populate the earth. No, God also created sex for pleasure between two lovers. There's this book in the Bible called The Song of Songs, and it is a book that openly and fully celebrates romance and sex. In fact, the book is so erotic that, that Orthodox Jewish men are not allowed to read it until they are 30 years old. And in fact, it's, it, it's so erotic that throughout church history, many people have tried to reinterpret it in some way to move it away from what is a very, 
kind of explicit book about sex. It tells the, it's this poetry that, that is a celebration of the love between a king and a shepherd girl, and it's highly sexual. In fact, chapter four is a sex scene. It, it's about a man and a woman on their wedding night, and she is undressing. And as she does, he is describing her body, her body from the top down. Uh, in fact, he starts off this way with her eyes. He says this, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful. Your eyes behind your veil are doves. And then if you read on, he describes her hair and then he describes her mouth. This is what he says. Your lips are like scarlet ribbon. Your mouth is lovely. And then he comes to her neck and to her breasts. He says this, your neck is like the Tower of David, but with courses of stone. On it hang a thousand shields, all of them shields of warriors. Your breasts are like two fawns, like twin fawns of a gazelle that browse among the lilies. And if you want to read more, I mean, he just keeps right on going, right? I mean, Song of Song, chapter four, it's in the Bible. You just go read it this afternoon if you want. The point is, it's a full-on celebration of sex between a husband and a wife. And it's not just from a male perspective. Tremper Longman, a highly respected Old Testament scholar, writes this. The role of women throughout the Song of Solomon is truly astounding, especially in light of its ancient origins. It is the woman, not the man, who is the dominant voice throughout the poems that make up the song. She's the one who seeks, pursues, initiates. In Song 5, 10 to 16, she boldly exclaims her physical attraction to her husband. She writes this, his, his abdomen is like a polished ivory tusk decorated with sapphires. He goes on to say this, most English translations hesitate in this verse. The Hebrew is quite erotic, and most translators cannot bring themselves to bring out the obvious meaning. This is a prelude to their lovemaking. There is no shy, shamed, mechanical movements under the sheets. Rather, the two stand before each other, aroused, feeling no shame, but only joy in each other's sexuality. That's the Bible. I mean, if you're prudish, the Bible makes you a little uncomfortable around this thing. And yet the Bible fully celebrates the pleasure of sex between two lovers. But it is often the case with God. When he creates something good and beautiful like sex, he layers it with deeper meanings, with, with a deeper purpose. So sex is for procreation. Sex is for recreation between lovers. It's for pleasure between a husband and a, and a wife. But behind that, at a deeper level, at a, at a level that is often overlooked within the church and definitely ignored by the world around us, there is another purpose behind why God created sex. In fact, after he first creates man and woman, this is what, what Genesis says. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Now, we've talked about this phrase, one flesh, before. In Hebrew, that word is ekad. And when it's connected to the, to the word flesh, it means to be fused together at the deepest levels. In other words, the purpose of sex isn't just procreation to have babies. It isn't just for pleasure and recreation between lovers. It is to fuse two people together at the deepest level. Ekad. That, that, that kind of oneness is when the lines blur between a man and a woman. Ecad is when, is when you are wrapped so close with another human being that it's hard to, to figure out where you end and they begin. 
ECAD is when you know and are known at the deepest, most intimate levels. In fact, just a few uh, chapters later, at the beginning of Genesis chapter 4, it says this. Adam knew his wife and she became pregnant. Now, the word know here is an idiom, a Hebrew idiom for having sex. But it's incredibly appropriate. It, it, it speaks of uh, the fact that when we make love to another person, that we know them at the deepest levels. See, the purpose of sex is to fuse two people together. For you to become one with that person. So sex is the melding not just of two bodies, but of two souls. Sex is both physical and spiritual. And you can't separate the two. As hard as you might try. That's why there's no such thing as casual sex. Because it involves all of you. Body, soul, and spirit. And that kind of fusing together is so powerful is so profound, is so fierce that the only place that is safe to contain that kind of fusing together of two people at the deepest level is within the, the covenant relationship, the lifelong covenant relationship of marriage between a man and a woman. And this is the reason why God calls for us to have abstinence from sex outside of marriage. Not because God has such a low view of sex, but rather because God has such a high view of what sex is about. You see, the problem with sex outside of marriage isn't just that it's morally wrong. It's also personally harmful to you. See, because every time that you have sex with another person, you give a part of yourself to that person. And that means that the more different people that you sleep with, the more you hollow yourself out, the more you empty yourself out until you have little or nothing to give away. And see, this is the ancient wisdom of the Bible that just now, as so often is the case, just now the science is beginning to catch up with it. You know, if, if you read the scientific literature these days around sex, one of the topics that is regularly discussed is the role of hormones in sex. And they're not talking just about estrogen and, and testosterone. They're talking about another, uh, another uh, hormone called oxytocin. Oxytocin was a hormone first discovered by scientists when they were studying the attachment between a mother and her newborn baby. When a newborn baby is breastfeeding, the, the mother's body releases this, this uh, hormone in her body called oxytocin that causes, uh, that, that stimulates the instinct to nurture and care for that baby. Oxytocin is called the attachment hormone. But what surprised scientists when they got studying more about sex is that that same hormone is released within a woman's body and the, the male equivalent is released within a man's body when they engage in sexual intercourse. In other words, when you have sex with another person, it's not just a physical thing, it's not just an emotional thing, but at the very deepest level, your bodies are making a chemical connection. And the hormones that are released within your body cause you to, to want to trust that person more, to, to, to connect with them, to attach to them at the deepest possible level. One sex therapist writes this, when we have intercourse, we create, quote, an involuntary chemical commitment. That you are being fused together at the deepest possible level, down to the chemical level when you have sex with another person. Which means that if you think you're having sort of no strings attached sex, you aren't. William Birdsley, 
psychiatric professor at Harvard University, says that people who try to disconnect the physical act of sex with the emotional side of it, he says, if you think that you can separate those two, he says, you're fooling yourself. In fact, by this stage of the sexual revolution, 50 years in, we're far enough in that many people outside of sort of the religious world, people who would never identify themselves in any way as religious and certainly not as followers of Jesus, are beginning to wake up to the significant drawbacks of sex outside of marriage. Not long ago, there's this fascinating article in the Washington Post, and the headline was this, Consent is not enough. We need a new sexual ethic. And the columnist, a lady named Christine Emba, writes that the outcome of the sexual revolution, which, which she notes freed people from the bonds of marriage and, and has allowed them to have all the sex that they want as long as the other person is consenting. She says this, that, that his, it has resulted in, she says this, quote, a world in which young people are both liberated and miserable. And she goes on to say that the experience of sex for many is sad, unsettling, and even traumatic. And then she writes this. Even when it goes well, sex is complicated. It involves our bodies, minds, and emotions, our connections to each other and our deepest selves. Despite the many and popular arguments that it's only a physical act, it is clear to almost anyone who has had it that sex has vast consequences some of which can last long after an encounter ends. And she, someone who is not a follower of Jesus, argues that we need a new ethic around sexuality because the current one leaves people in a mess. And she's not the only one. The feminist writer, Nancy uh, Jo Sales, uh, who would not put herself anywhere near the Christian world at all, and who, who openly states that she would want uh, there to be this blissful state of free love. I mean, that's her goal. She says, but even though that's the goal, we're not accomplishing it. Here's what she writes. According to studies, men as well as women experience negative feelings about their casual sexual encounters, from anxiety to depression to regret, with women having possibly more thoughts of worry and vulnerability than men. And then, and then there's the social scientists Probably the one who has done the most research in this area is a social scientist, a researcher, Donna Friedis, who has interviewed literally hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of college and university students that have been involved in the hookup culture. And what she's found in her research is that most are not happy with the current way, the current sort of sexual ethic of the world around us. Here's what she found. She writes, they, these young people that she's interviewed, they're really ambivalent about the sex they're having. According to everything they see in pop culture, they're supposed to be having a great time. But it's rare that I find a young man or young woman who says hooking up is the best thing ever. But then she writes this. In reality, it seems to empty them out. There's this sort of soullessness fostered in hookup culture. There's a learned callousness. Sex is something you're not to care about. It's almost like their job is to get it done. It's fascinating what she discovers. She discovers that it almost seems to empty them out when, they're, when people are involved in that kind of uh, sex. You see, if you have sex outside of marriage, you have to kind of steel yourself against the power of sex 
the emotional power that, that draws you in to trust that person and to give yourself fully to that person. And the result is eventually a callousness and a, and a cynicism towards sex that, that will cause you grief down the road when you do find that person that you want to get married to. And then you find it harder to have sex and harder to trust that person. You see, it damages you. It, it harms you. And that's why the Apostle Paul writes this. Whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Because you see, the way God designed sex, it fuses two people together at the deepest level. And so if you're having sex with all kinds of different people outside of marriage, you are slowly hollowing yourself out. You're harming yourself. You see, again, God doesn't give us these commands because he's a grumpy old man sitting in heaven who's a killjoy. No, no, it's the exact opposite. He's a good and a loving father who wants to, to care for us. And he wants us to flourish. And, and when it comes to sex, he wants us to experience the best possible sex. Because he's a God who created sex. And, and because he calls it very, very good. And that's why in the same verse, the Apostle Paul says this. Flee from sexual immorality. Because you see, again, it, it'll destroy you. The word that Paul uses for sexual immorality here, the Greek word, is the word porneia. It's a, what we call a junk drawer word. You, you know what a junk drawer is, right? You got one at home. You got, it's a drawer where you're like, I don't know what to do. You just throw it all in there. Then you shut it. Guests come and it's fine, right? That's, that's this kind of word when it comes to sexual immorality. Basically what Paul says, what it means, porneia means all forms of sexuality outside of the marriage between a man and a man. And a woman. So everything from sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend to friends with benefits, casual sex, oral sex, oral sex outside of marriage, adultery, prostitution, porn, raunchy movies, adult films, films, strip clubs. I mean, you name it. It's all pornea because it's all a cheap knockoff of what God designed sex to be. See, the message that we hear so often about sex in our culture today is it's all about freedom. It's all about you just have the freedom to enjoy and to do. But the problem is once you get into it, it begins to entangle you because it's so powerful. And what was originally supposed to be freedom becomes slavery. Well, once you get wrapped into that, you have to watch porn. You, you can't, it just sucks you and you can't help it. You, you, you have to jack off. You, you have to sleep with your boyfriend. You, you have to let him touch you. you. You have to have sex, even though you know that it is stealing from your future. You see, we think that freedom is being about being able to do whatever it is that you want to do. But that's not freedom. That's slavery. The kind of freedom that Jesus talks about, the kind of freedom that he offers is the freedom to do what you should do so that you get the fullness of life, so that you live life the way that God intended it to be lived. Freedom from the emptiness and the pain of failed sexual encounters. Freedom from cynicism and a callousness about sex. Freedom to find healing and hope in your sexual life. Freedom to see sex as a gift. Not some dirty thing that you sweep under the rug and kind of like don't, don't talk about and don't 
think highly about, but neither to think that it is all that, that, that this is the answer to everything in the longings of my heart. Instead, the freedom to see sex is the good gift that it is that God gives to us. See, that's true freedom. But once you've been drawn into to sex because it's so powerful, it's not easy to get that kind of freedom again. Of course, with the power of God at work in your life, it's, it's, it's certainly available to you, but there's all incredible power doing that along with others who are seeking that. And so there is, in our church, we have what we just simply call a men's group. It's a group for men who are saying, yes, I want to leave behind all of that cheap knockoff of sex. I want to find true freedom in this. It's a group that meets here at the church. It's anonymous. And if you're saying, you know, I, I need freedom from this thing. I thought it would give me freedom, but instead it is just, it is just slavery that I find myself in. If you want that, you should contact this group. You just call them, don't call them, just email them here, mensgroup at ridgechurch.ca. Just say, hey, talk to me and check it out. You'll find freedom in Jesus. If you want to know more, you can check out our website as well, ridgechurch.ca, and there's a place there that will give you some more information about it. That said, statistics tell us that it's not just men who struggle with this. Women do too in all kinds of ways. Now here at the church, we don't have a women's group like we have a men's group, but we do have a certified biblical counselor, Margaret. She's amazing. And if you want help in your world around these issues, you should contact her. And again, her email is here on the, on the screen as well. The Apostle Paul says this, flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. You're not your own. You were bought with a price. Therefore, honor God with your body. See, God wants what is best for you, especially when it comes to sex. God wants you to have incredible sex. He wants you to have the sex that you've always dreamed of. He, he wants you to have the kind of sex that everybody is searching for. And he says, that kind of sex is found in marriage. In fact, that's what the studies have been finding again over and over. You know who consistently reports having the best sex? The studies show that it's people who are monogamous, heterosexual, married couples who've had few or no partners before marriage. That's what the studies show. In fact, if you dig down deeper, if you even get more specific about it, it's actually, and I'm not making this up, this is what the studies would say, that the, that it is, it is the people, the people who report, report having the best sex ever are Christian couples who are middle-aged and married. I mean, that'll blow your mind, right? But that's a good demographic to be part of. And you know who reports being the least sexually satisfied? Promiscuous singles who have frequent sexual encounters. That's what the studies show. It's the exact opposite of what our culture teaches us. I mean, when was the last time that you watched a movie where a couple in their 40s that had been married for 20 years on the night of their 20th wedding anniversary had great sex? Well, when was the last time that you watched a movie where a, a single, thin, gorgeous woman wakes up in the morning after having sex and feels alone and empty? Because that's what the statistics show. That's the reality when it comes to sex. 
Now, you might be saying, wait, 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 let go back. What? Middle-aged, married couples have the best sex? How is that possible? Well, the answer is uh, practice. Turns out, sex gets better over time. And, and if you don't know your Bibles, the thing I'm going to tell you next will blow you away, but the Bible actually commands married couples to have regular sex. A good thing. In fact, one of my friends, uh, he, he used to always say this about sex. He said, sex isn't the icing on the cake. It's a key ingredient in the cake. Another person has said this. Sex is like the oil in the engine of marriage. There's all these moving parts. There's, there's you know, kids and money and pressures and in-laws and all these different things. And sex is like the oil that, that reduces the friction and helps it all keep going. Because sex fuses us together at the deepest possible levels. And so it's important to have regular sex. Here's what the Apostle Paul writes. The husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but yields it to his wife. Do not deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent and for a time. Now you have to understand how revolutionary this passage would have been when it was first read in the city of Corinth all those years ago. Because back in that day, women were considered the legal possessions of their husbands. The husbands owned their, the women, their wives, meaning they owned their bodies. And Paul now writes to the husbands and says, ah, but your wife owns your body too. It would have blown their mind. Is what? Because you see, in that day, as sometimes uh, too often these days, there was a double standard for men. men. Men in that day would marry a woman to become their wife so that they could have legal heirs, so that they could have children. But then they would have all these mistresses that they went to for their sexual pleasure. Women, on the other hand, if they had sex with anyone besides their husband, well, then they were considered sluts. And of course, uh, sometimes they could be brutally punished for it. And now Paul says to the husbands, oh, no, you have no right to any of that. Your body is now the possession of your wife. Profoundly revolutionary changing how Christians see and, and understand their relationship with one another. But not only that, he then speaks to a very high view of sexual satisfaction within a marriage. See, what he writes then to the husband is this, your responsibility towards your wife is to seek and find what will give her the most sexual pleasure. That's counter to how so many people think that sex is about giving themselves pleasure. No, 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 no. Sometimes this passage in the Bible has been misunderstood and sometimes people have used it to say to this folks, see, the Bible says you have to do what I want. Mm, no, no, no. This passage actually says the exact opposite. It says that for the husband, when he goes into a, a sexual encounter with his wife, his primary goal should be to do what pleases her. Now, he says the same thing to the wife. Her primary responsibility should be to do what pleases him. But neither are demanding something that the other isn't comfortable with. And the result of that is good sex. Which means that you need to be aware of what your spouse needs most so that you can, can honor them when it comes to sex. 
Now, you know, when it comes to sex, generally, not always, not in every case, but, but generally when it comes to sex, a husband is like, anytime, place, let's do this thing. Let's go. And, and the wife, again, generally, but not always, says, well, we need to connect first. And he'll say, well, I got a way for us to connect. And she'll be like, no, no, we need to talk. And be like, we're talking right now. She'll be like, no, 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 we need to, we need to, we need to connect. And, and, and if we can connect, then we can connect. Right? I mean, th- this is the key when it comes to that sexual relationship. It's what God calls husbands and wives to, to say what's best for the other because it results in the best sex. Now, that's sad. I mean, you know, if you're married, you know that sex within marriage can be complicated. Sometimes it can cause a lot of friction. But the call when that's the case is not to abandon sex. I mean, maybe for a season, Paul says, so that you can pray, but not long. But rather to, 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 to continue to figure out how to, to pursue sex with one another. How to honor one another. How to, how to pleasure one another in a way that is good for the other person. Because it fuses you together at the deepest level. Because it isn't just the icing on the cake. It is a key ingredient in the cake. Because it's the oil in the machinery of your marriage. There's so much more that could be said about sex. Uh, But I want to just end by saying a couple of things real quickly. Three things. First, to those of you who have experienced sexual abuse... You know, because sex is so powerful. It's not only the source of great joy in our life, but it is also, uh, it, but if it is used as a weapon, it can be so destructive and so, so damaging. And if that's happened to you, I am so sorry for you. What was done to you was evil and sick and incredibly sinful and wrong. But you got to know that there's healing for that. But you also got to know, and, and maybe you do, that, that it just makes sex within the context of a marriage to the person that you love, it makes it more complicated and, and challenging. And, and it may be that you just need to pursue counseling for yourself and maybe, and maybe for the person that you're married to. They, they need it as well. But I just want to encourage you that there's healing and there's hope. But you, can, you should seek support and help in that regard. And second, to those of you who are single, and who don't see any immediate prospect of getting married and maybe aren't actually interested in that option. It's important to remember that while the Bible holds a high view of sex, much higher than our culture does, it's not the ultimate definition of who you are. Our culture would say that your identity is staked primarily in your sexuality and that your highest happiness is found in having sex. But your human dignity The dignity that God gave you when he created you is much greater than just your sexuality. Don't reduce your human self-understanding or your self-expression simply to your sexual urges. You know, the scriptures, along with generations of Christians, both in the past and currently, have found that you can, and, and many do, live deeply, meaningful, full, rich, happy lives without having to express themselves sexually. And you could do the same. You know, don't don't pin too much on sex. Be careful not to buy into the myth of the culture that your identity is based primarily in your sexuality. 
If you do, you will miss out on a great deal that God wants to offer you for a rich, beautiful, amazing life, even as you practice chastity. Okay, that's the second thing. And then finally, to all of us who are followers of Jesus, who have committed to following his teachings and his wisdom, and who live by this ethic, this sexual ethic that God lays out for our benefit, I don't have to tell you how incredibly countercultural that view of sexuality is. Which means that we are the new sexual rebels, right? I mean, in the 60s, it was the hippies and their free love who were the, the sexual rebels doing differently than the world around us. But today, 50 years later, we're the sexual rebels. We're the ones who are living so differently than the world around us. But you know, 50 years into the sexual revolution, the sheen of the promise of the sexual revolution is beginning to wear off. As I've already pointed out, all kinds of people, scientists and, and psychiatrists at places like Harvard and UCLA and top flight feminists and leading social scientists and high profile uh, journalists, anyone, anyone who actually scratches just a little below the surface to find out what's really going on in the lives of real people is finding that the sexual revolution is not producing the results that it so boldly promises that people would have. Instead of bringing the kind of happiness and freedom that it promises, instead it's resulting in deep hurt and cynicism and disillusionment and emptiness. Which means that we have something to offer the culture around us. Not condemnation, ne never condemnation, but rather a vision, a better vision, a beautiful vision of what marriage and sex can be all about. Because if the current trends are any indication, there is going to be a quiet but ever-growing number of people who are disillusioned with the story that our culture keeps telling them about what sex and sexuality is all about. Which also means that this is not the time to downplay our view of sex, our sexual ethic. Rather, we need to live it calmly and, and kindly in the world around us and to present it gently, but in the process to, to tell a better story, to extend the mercy and the grace of the gospel to people who are saying, there's got to be something better. In fact, Trevin Wax uh, writes about a, a conversation he had with a guy that was not a Christian in any means, not, not religious at all, but who was raising his preteen daughter and, and was saying like, I want to raise my daughter to have virtue and, and self-control and, and boundaries. And, and he was just, he was just disillusioned and, and kind of lost in the, in the culture that he's finding himself in. And Trevin Wax said this to a man like that, a Christian ethic, well, what we hold would not be considered a negative, but would be one of the most attractive things about our faith. You see, we shouldn't see our ethic as a barrier to faith. There'll be many who attack it for sure, but it'll actually, we should see it as a beacon of light in the midst of darkness. And there will be many who say, I've tried the promises of the culture. I found them incredibly lacking and I'm looking for something else. And as we live our lives, the way that Jesus calls us to, in light of the ethic that God has created us for, as we do, we will become more and more a city on a hill, a light in the darkness that draws people find the life and light in God our Father. Let's live the way that God calls us to. It is for our benefit 
and for his glory. Amen. Okay, would you bow your heads with me? Let's pray together. Lord God and Heavenly Father, we, we come to you today having talked about this. And God, we know that the way that we live is so different than the world around us. It's so often scorned and mocked and sometimes outright ridiculed for, for this way of living. And yet, God, we see that it's the right way. It's a good way. It is a way that brings life and fullness. And God, as we see, even the, those who actually study God find it to be the truth. God, would you grant us the courage? Oh, God, the courage to live the way you call us to. God, would you help us to walk against the culture because it brings us life and fullness. It's for our benefit. And God, I pray particularly for those who have suffered the negative results of, of sex outside of marriage. God, I, I pray, Lord, for, for healing and hope for those who have experienced sexual abuse. Father, that you would open a door for them, that you would bring healing into their life. And God, I, I pray for those who are trapped, who what, what seemed what was presented as freedom has instead enslaved them. Oh God, may they find freedom as they walk together with others, as they look to you, so they can experience the beauty and the fullness of what you always intended sex to be. And God, as we live our life before you, may others just see our gentleness and our joy, and may they be drawn to find their life in you. So God, we give ourselves to you again. Would you lead us? Would you help us in this area? We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Uh, well, thank you for joining us today. Thank you for thinking carefully about the area of sex and, and what God says about it. May, may you find joy and freedom as you follow his ways. Uh, next week, we're going to start a new series in the book of Romans. It's going to be great. We're going to talk about another thing that people often are afraid to touch is the whole area of sin and what it's about. It's going to be a brilliant conversation. So I just enjoy, invite you to join us next week. But this week, let me send you out with these words again. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord turn his face to shine upon you. May the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week. We'll see you next week.